thought we'd turn tonight to uh, an Old Testament text. It also is quite well known, written against a background of battle and war. On the horizon, as Isaiah wrote these words, uh, looking over the distant horizon of time, he could see the mighty Assyrian army preparing for a march south, and he knew that the days of the northern kingdom of Israel were numbered. He knew also that the little southern kingdom of Judah would feel the full weight of the Assyrian arm. Everybody was thinking about a battle. Isaiah was thinking about a babe. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. Every battle of the warrior, with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Everybody's thinking about battles. Isaiah was thinking of a boy. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. May the Holy Spirit add his blessing to the reading of his word. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The child born is the babe of Bethlehem. The son given is the ancient of days. The child born is a picture of absolute weakness. The Son given a picture of undiluted omnipotence. Child born a description of his humanity. The Son given a picture of his deity. The child born, why that was the seed, the long-awaited seed of the woman. The Son given was the eternal and uncreated and self existing second person of the Godhead. Child born, that's the one who was born of the Virgin Mary. The son given, the one who was conceived of the Holy Ghost. Child born is the way that Matthew and Luke introduce him. The son given is the way that John introduces him. Child born takes us back to a 
point in time. The sun given takes us back to the dateless, timeless past, before ever time began. The child born, the son given, the glory of his claim, and the glory of his name, and the glory of his fame. Well, that's exactly what he claimed to be, wasn't it? He claimed to be God, manifest in flesh. God who had been manifest in flaming suns and burning stars, now manifest in flesh, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. At one and the same time, he was son of God and son of man. That doesn't mean that part of the time uh, he was God and part of the time he was man. And you look at him as he journeys through these scenes of time and you say, now he's acting like a man. Now he's acting like God. That's not the idea at all. He was God all the time. And he was man all the time. When he was born, something absolutely unique happened in the history of this world. It wasn't the birth of a new babe at all. It wasn't the creation of a new personality. It was the coming into this world of a person who had existed from all eternity. And he was absolutely God overall blessed forevermore and he was perfectly human a true child of Adam's race we can't tell where his deity ends or where his humanity begins or where his humanity ends and where his deity begins you see him, for example, sitting by that wayside well. And there comes that wicked woman from the village just over the hill. He's weary, it says. Weary with his journey. Just tired. He sat down on the well. He sent the disciples to go on in and get whatever provisions they could find. He was tired. He sat down. Weary. That was his humanity. When that woman came along, he asked her for a drink of water because he was thirsty. That was his humanity. In fact, she didn't uh, at first recognize anything more than his humanity. She saw that he was a Jew and she said, how is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? All she could see was his humanity, but then he began to tell her all things that ever she did. 
He said, go and get your husband. Oh, she said, I don't have a husband. He said, you said the truth, Lord. You've had half a dozen. But the one you're living with now is not your husband. That was his deity. She went back to the village. She said, come see a man which told me all things which ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Where does his humanity end and his deity begin? You see him standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. He said, Show me where you put it. And uh, as he made his way toward the tomb, you have that pregnant statement that Jesus wept. He stood there with tears running down his cheeks. Those who were watching him said, I wonder why he, he healed others. Why didn't he heal this one? But that was his humanity. Out of his pity and out of his love, unless he looked into the tear-stricken face of Mary and Martha biting her lip, holding back her tears, he wept. That was his humanity. Then he said, roll away the stone from the door. When finally overcoming their resistance, he was obeyed and the stone was rolled back. He stood there and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with the grave clothes. Two miracles in one. That was his deity. Where does the humanity end and the deity begin? You see him hanging there on Calvary's cross, battered and beaten and crowned with thorns, a spectacle to men and to angels bruised and spit upon. Hanging there upon nails driven through his hands and feet. By and by, as that hot eastern sun beat down upon his head, he said, I thirst. That was his humanity. He began his public ministry in the wilderness, tempted of the devil by being hungry, and he ended it on Calvary's cross by being thirsty. That was his humanity. Within a moment he begins to rend creation's rocks, split the veil of the temple in twain from top to bottom, burst open the tombs from one end of the country to the other, bring a proud Roman legionnaire to his knees, confessing this was the Son of God. Where does the humanity end and the deity begin? Or where does the deity end and the humanity begin? Well, of course, it doesn't, does it? 
he was God all the time. And he was man all the time. Even as he was rocked in that cradle and held in that godly woman's arms that God had chosen to be his mother, he was upholding all things by the word of his power. All the great heresies of the church down through the centuries have centered around some effort on this one or that one to emphasize the deity of Christ at the expense of his humanity or to emphasize his humanity at the expense of his deity. You'll find as you study your Bible, especially your New Testament, that the great mysteries which are unfolded in the New Testament, those great secrets that God had kept locked up in his heart and has now revealed by his holy apostles and prophets, you'll find that they're all illustrated in the Old Testament. The greater the mystery, the clearer the illustration the Old Testament. You have a perfect illustration in the Old Testament of the, of, of the strange mixing of deity and humanity in the personality of the Lord Jesus in his nature. God all the time. Man all the time. You remember the veil of the temple, made of costly linen, comprised of three colors, red and blue and purple. The red, of course, reminds us that Jesus was the son of man. He's called the last Adam. And the very name Adam simply means red. That's what the name means, red. The blue reminds us that he was son of God. It's the color of the sky, the one who came down from on high, whose true home was somewhere beyond the blue. Now you take the red and you take the blue in equal amounts. Here you have a quart of red paint and here you have a quart of blue paint and you've got a can and you pour the one into the other and then you mix them so that you can't tell where the one color ends and the other color begins and what do you have? Purple. That's exactly what happened when Jesus came. God took deity and perfectly blended it with humanity. And in the person of the Lord Jesus, we have the nature of one who was God all the time, and who was man all the time. The man Christ Jesus, God over all, blessed forevermore. Unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given. But then the prophet tells us about his name. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He was the Wonderful Counselor. That means there is no problem that he cannot solve. 
He was the mighty God. That means there is no power that he cannot subdue. He is the father of eternity. That means there is no period that he cannot stand. He is the prince of peace and that means there is no person he cannot subdue. Wonderful counsel, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the wonderful counselor. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in writing to the Colossian Christians, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom. Not just knowledge, although he had perfect knowledge. He knew all the facts of history. He knew all the formulas and equations of science. He knew all the laws by which the universe is governed. But not just knowledge, wisdom. One single day you see the Lord Jesus being attacked on three fronts. First of all came the Herodians with a politically loaded question. They just expelled their traffic mongers from the temple. It was Passover week. The place was crowded with pilgrims from all across the empire. Josephus says at that time of the year there are probably a million visitors to Jerusalem. Everybody was excited because of him. The Herodians decided to hand him a politically loaded question to see if they couldn't get it. They said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? The occupying detested Roman. Of course, they wanted to get him either to support the enforced taxation of Caesar and thus enrage the Jewish people or else to spurn the enforced taxation and embroil himself with Pilate. They didn't do either. He said, show me a penny. They said, whose image is this? Whose superscription? They said, Caesar. He said, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. Wonderful counsel. On the same day that the Herodians handed him a politically loaded question, the Sadducees handed him a religiously loaded question. They were the theological liberals, the wealthy, aristocratic, and powerful party in the Sanhedrin. They denied the supernatural. They didn't believe the Bible, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in evil spirits. They were liberals. They told him a story. They said, uh, we know a case of a widow. Husband died, and according to the Mosaic law, she was married by her husband's brother, and he died. And when he had another brother, he married her, and he died. There was another brother, he married her, and he died. I often wondered about the, the last fellow, Mr. Fortune, you know. Pretty risky business marrying this widow. She must have been putting arsenic in there, see. <laughs> At least they would be tempted to think that. 
half a dozen brothers, and at last the long-suffering widow died. And then came the punchline. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Sounds like a little, doesn't it? <laughs> he said, you betray your ignorance both of the scriptures and of the power of God. He said, the simple answer is, she, she won't be married any of us in the resurrection. And then the Pharisees handed him a legally loaded question. One of their lawyers asked him, which is the great commandment of the law? The scribes counted 613 commandments of the law, 248 affirmative commandments, one for each member of the body and 365 negative commandments, one for each day of the year. As a matter of fact, and as a matter of interest, all 613 commandments of the law added up to the number of letters in Hebrew in the Decalogue. The Ten Commandments. Lord brushed aside all this game playing. They wanted to know which is the great commandment of the law. He says, very simple, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. What a wonderful counsel. Just shortly afterwards, having handed him a politically loaded question and a religiously loaded question and a legally loaded question, they handed him a morally loaded question. They brought to him an unfortunate woman taken in the very act of committing adultery, they made a great deal of that. Caught, they said, in the very act. He might have turned around and said, well, why didn't you bring the man? He they said, Moses said in the law that she should be stoned to death. But we know how compassionate you are. What do you say? Loaded question. Law or grace. It's very interesting what he did. He stooped down and began to write something on the ground. In the dust. You know that's the only time you ever read of Jesus writing anything. And nobody knows what he wrote except them. I have an idea. He wrote down the name of the oldest one of those men. Put a date alongside it. That man slunk away. Wrote down the name of the next man, put a name beside it, and that man slunk away. Till it all gone. There's the woman standing there, poor soul. Hath no man condemned, no man lost. Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Mighty God. The name for God here is not the name Elohim. It's the contraction. It's the word El. And it means it's a concentration of all the mightiness of God. The almighty God. That's the idea behind the word. That's who he was. 
He was the mighty God. One adventure-packed day in his life, you see him performing three extraordinary miracles. Late in the evening, after the stilling of the storm, they arrive on the other side of the lake. It must have been a scene worth painting. Bright moon shining down. The country on the other side of the lake from Capernaum was wild country. Nearby was a steep bluff which descends abruptly into a narrow ledge of the shore. The whole countryside quarried with limestone caves, rock chambers used for the dead. And in those rock chambers there lived a madman. The terrible man. They, they'd sent out their strongest men to, to bind him with chains and he had simply tore the chains asunder like Samson in the Old Testament. Nobody'd go anywhere near the place. They could hear his cries at night making the night hideous. They'd bar and bolt their doors at night for fear of. Came screaming out of the tombs must have been a terrifying sight, a man possessed with 6,000 devils. The Lord Jesus simply cast every single one of them out of him. Demonstration of his power over demons. Next morning came back to Capernaum. And there he was met by this unfortunate woman with the issue of blood She'd been in that condition for ten long, terrible years. Ostracized by society, excommunicated by the Jewish religion. Her case was absolutely desperate. There was no doctor could cure her. She had impoverished herself seeking some kind of medical solution to her problem. She must have lived uh, the equivalent of the United States. Then Jesus came, and one touch was all it took. Demonstration of his power over disease. Same day was poor distracted Jairus, whose little girl was dying, twelve years of age. Twelve years of misery for that woman, twelve years of sunshine for Jairus and his wife with that little girl, and now she was desperately ill, dying. The ruler of the synagogue must have been well known to Jesus, doubtly by his invitation that the Lord Jesus spoke at the local Capernaum synagogue. The delay caused by the woman with the hemorrhage must have driven poor Jairus to distraction. Then came the terrible news, it's too late. The little girl's dead. Don't trouble him anymore. So he went anywhere. You can, can, you can hardly imagine the pandemonium that was going on in that house. An eastern funeral, the hired mourners had come already busy with their flutes and professional lamentations and the Lord Jesus told the shut up. The girl wasn't dead. They laughed in the score. They perfectly well, she was dead. He went in and took Peter, James and John and the mom and dad with him, took the little girl by the hand, spoke two words. That's all. Little maid, I say unto thee, arise two words in the Greek text. A demonstration of his power over death. 
one day, his power over demons and over disease and over death, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Or as it can be rendered, the Father of eternity. I rather like that rendering. Time is all we know, of course. We are born and we live and we die in a dimension of time. And we divide time into three phases, past, present, and future, although we actually live like God in the present tense. You don't live in the past, you think about the past, you don't live in the future, you anticipate the future, you live in the present. That flickering moment that as it comes and gone, that's the present tense, that's where you live, right in that flickering moment of the present tense of time, that's where God lives, in the eternal present tense. Except he knows no past and no future. I suppose of all the people I've ever read on this subject of time, nobody has handled it quite like Charles Dickens in his famous story, Christmas Carol. You remember old Ebenezer Scrooge visited by the ghost of his dead partner, Jacob Marley, and told he was to be haunted that night by three spirits. The first one came, it was the ghost of his past. And that ghost showed him his greed. What a scheming, grasping, tight-fisted hand at the grindstone he had been. Showed him his greed. And then there was the ghost of the present. It showed him his guilt. Showed him the poor and the ragged and the unfortunate and the ignorant of the downtrodden. Then there was the ghost of the future that showed him his grave, silent and stern, terrible, haunting of the ghost of the future, showed him a form lying on a bed under a sheet, showed him being robbed of his very grave clothes. Took him out to the cemetery and showed him a tomb. Showed him the name on the tomb. Ebenezer Scrooge. That's it. You see, we live in the present, but you can't escape the past. And the ghost of your past haunts you. You can't escape the future. The ghost of the future haunts you. Tormented by the past and terrified by the future. Locked in a time cycle that we can't escape. But Jesus is not locked into time before time and beyond time and bigger than time is eternity and he is called here the father of eternity we can comprehend eternity in some measure as we think of an eternity yet to come we can somehow comprehend the idea going on living forever and ever and ever that is not beyond our comprehension But what we cannot comprehend is 
eternity as it relates to the past. We can understand something that has a beginning, because we've had a beginning. We can understand a beginning that maybe took place 50 years ago. We can even understand a beginning that took place 50 billion years ago. But it's a beginning. We can understand that. But something that never had a beginning. Oh, we can't understand that. And then Jesus comes into the picture and he's called the Father of Eternity. So, Eternity has a father. It too has a beginning, for if eternity has a father, then the father of eternity had to be there before eternity was there. And that seems to satisfy us for a moment. Then we think that just makes the first cause the second cause, and that's a mathematical impossibility. So we're back where we started from. The father of eternity, one who never had a beginning. That's how he revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament. He said, I am. Whom shall I say sent me? Just tell them I am sent you. When they asked Jesus who he was, he said, before Abraham was. I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was, although that would have been perfectly true, but it wouldn't have been wholly true. So he told them the, the truth. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Father of eternity. One who had no beginning. And no ending. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. This world has known very little of peace. In 6,000 years of its history, ever since Cain murdered Abel. When he stepped out of eternity into time to be born in that Bethlehem barn, the herald angels came down from the heights of heaven, and they awoke the echoes of those Judean hills, singing, Peace on earth! Good will to men. Peace. They flung God's peace off a back in his face. And yet God is so persistent it says that he this must be one of the most astonishing statements in the entire Bible. In Colossians it says that he made peace through the blood of his cross. Amazing thing when you stop to think of it here was God manifest in flesh. The one whom angels worship. Creator of the universe. Upholding all things by the word of his power. A man took him and spat in his face crowned him with thorns and plowed his back with a Roman scourge and took him out to Calvary's hill and nailed him to a cross of wood and hung him up to die and gathered around to mock him and to jeer. Twelve legions of angels with drawn swords 
straining over the battlements of heaven, waiting for one word. But never came. For as the sheep before her shearers was done, so he opened not his mouth. And amazing mystery God, it says, has made peace. Peace. Through the blood of that cross, he is the Prince of Peace. That's his claim, and his name, and his fame. The government, it says, shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government, to peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom. Wow, Mr. Clinton. Is that the name of the cup? He thinks he's worked out peace in the Middle East. Poor cup. No peace. We think we're going to have peace with the Russians. Don't you believe it? Huh. This is just a, a little interlude, that's all. It's going to be bad as ever it was, worse than ever it was before. You wait till Russia sides with Islam and with Germany. Then we're going to have something to worry about. Except we won't be here, we'll be in heaven. His government, the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Because he's coming back, and it's all true, it's going to happen. What happened the first time literally fulfilled many an ancient prophecy. And all those other prophecies still slumbering in the womb of time, not yet fulfilled, we don't explain them away allegorizing them. We believe them to be literally true and they will happen as written one day. Peace. And in the meantime, what he offers to you and to me is that in our hearts, until the day comes when he reigns over river, sea and shore, he offers to set up his kingdom in our hearts and reign over spirit, soul and body and usher into our little life's experience, a miniature millennium. Shall we pray? So, Lord, we thank you that you have this wonderful name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Father of eternity, Prince of Peace, and that you are coming back one day to make all the rest of it happen. So we thank you that you came the first time and we're looking forward to your coming the second time. In his name, amen.